Our theme verse, the theme verse we're going to be going over, um, continue to go over for the next couple of weeks, comes out of Exodus chapter 34. It is the most quoted verse in the entirety of Scripture. Over and over and over again, faithful people of God came to this verse as a description of who God is and called Israel, called the early church to obedience to this God. And this is how God reveals his own essence, his own character to his people. God says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord is compassionate gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. Would you pray with me as we begin our worship service? Jesus, we long to be people. Um, we know we're, that we are created in your image, and yet routinely we behave differently than that. So help us become people who are compassionate, who are gracious, who are slow to anger, who have, who have an abundant loyal love, and who are faithful. We come here this morning um, not to have our needs met, not to, to be seen, not to feel special, but to praise you, to give you glory, to give you honor, to give you praise, to give you thanks for the mighty deeds you have done in our lives and in our world. We long to worship you and worship you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you join me uh, in unison for our call to worship? We gather together in the presence of our shepherd God, who calls us each by name who restores our souls, who leads us in the way of righteousness, and whose goodness and love never stops pursuing us. This is the God we have come to worship. Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Proverbs, which is wisdom, and it's wisdom that requires us to use wisdom to discern when to use the wisdom. This is our first passage out of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I'd like to read a prayer today that was written by Bruce Pruer, and I felt it appropriate based on the current events that are going on. It's a prayer for those that suffer, and so would you pray with me? Our God belongs to all people and treasures each person, every single person, so let us pray for them. Holy Father, holy friend, healer, and liberator, we lift up before you those people who are at this very moment suffering from either accident, disease, their own folly, or the cruelty and the evil of others. Please have mercy for your people, O oh God. Forgive our human iniquities and heal our many diseases. At this very moment, many fellow humans are crying out against the cruelty of captivity, hostages and abducted children, prisoners of war and political detainees, many mistakenly convicted, and especially for our black siblings in Buffalo who were targeted and murdered while simply shopping for groceries. Please have mercy for your people, O oh God. Forgive our human iniquities and heal our many diseases. At this moment, many of our fellow human beings are suffering physical and mental abuse battered wives and children, 
others beaten up by robbers or tortured for information, verbally abused and denigrated, left with unintended wounds, threatened with the injury of loved ones. Despair prevails. Have mercy for your people, O God. Forgive our human iniquities and heal our many diseases. At this moment, there are people who are traumatized by sudden injury, victims of industry or the highways, soldiers wounded in battle, civilians bombed or terrorized, those maimed by the carelessness of others, and some who for personal thrills have taken big risks and lost. Please have mercy for your people, O oh God. Forgive our human iniquities and heal our many diseases. At this moment, there are thousands who are in terror or despair because of natural disasters. Flood and house fire, cyclone and earthquake, avalanche or bushfire, drought or lightning strike, storm waves or volcanic eruption. Have mercy for your people, O oh God. Forgive our human iniquities and heal our many diseases. Holy friend, help your church to do whatever we can to lessen the multiple sufferings of humanity. Encourage each of us to rest our own pain and grief in your infinite mercy and to not cease from righteous anger, prayer, and appropriate action while injustice and neglect exist anywhere, anywhere in your world. Please have mercy on your church, O oh God. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Our next scripture reading comes out of Romans chapter 2. And I confess this is a hard one for me to read this morning because I want to judge. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O people, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we, as we look at your characteristic today of being slow to anger and seeing just how much anger there is in our world and how much anger there is in ourselves and how much anger there just, it's almost impossible to escape. Help us to trust in your love and in your mercy. Help us to embody your righteous anger, but not an anger that justifies us or turns us into judges, that role belongs to you. And if we're being really honest this morning, Jesus, I want you to be judge. I want you to be faithful to your promises. We long for you to hold court and keep people accountable. And yet we're also called to be kind and loving and forgiving. Help us find the balance in that and of allowing you to be judge for a spirit that 
allows us to have righteous anger. But also that we wouldn't condemn and we wouldn't write off. So teach us, teach us the mystery of your ways this morning and every day to come. In your name, amen. So this week, we're doing Slow to Anger, and we've got a video for you, just like each week up to this point. And so do enjoy this video. It's from The Bible Project. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase, that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first, we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose. That is, their slow anger. Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given 10 chances to let Israel go free. But after the 10th refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites. And so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him. And we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures, like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations. And so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's anger is being revealed against human evil. And then three times he says what that looks like. 
God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But, Paul also says, God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil, and it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. He would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions upon himself. In Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. Just thinking about all the times I get angry and how you're just going to snarl up that nose and that you can feel that heat. Whereas that patient person God is described as, it's almost like a, a fuse, right? It's got a lot more time to diffuse that fuse. And uh, anyways, we would do lots to, uh, to mimic God's patient, long-suffering. So there are so many passages throughout Scripture that talk about God's anger being kindled towards injustices in our world. And I'll be honest, some of them are a little scary. I'd like to read one for you. You ready for it? Great, thanks. I needed that sort of, uh, thank you, I really needed that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you have your Bible, it's chapter 6, 13 to 15, it says this, the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. Do not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are all around you, because the Lord your God who is present with you is a jealous God. The anger of the Lord your God would be kindled against you and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. By raise of hands, how many of you have ever been an idol worshiper? You are self-deceived if your hand is not up in the air right now. I'm gonna ask again. How many of you have ever been, or are, or were this morning, or will be this afternoon, an idol worshiper? There you go, there you go. And if, you're, if you want to be self-deceptive and just choose to decide you don't worship idols, God loves you anyways. But here's the reality. God says, if you worship idols, money, power, sex, any number of things, prestige, anything, if your gaze is captivated by anything other than God's graciousness, it's an idol. And he says, you will be obliterated from the face of the earth. So the, the next question I have is, what are y'all doing here? Why am I still standing? I am an idolater, like big time. My gaze, my affections are constantly meandering away from Jesus all the time. And yet, here, I'm not smited. This is just one of many passages describing what happens if we stray away from God, if we decide to worship things other than God. So why do we have passages like this? 
Is God a liar? Is the Bible unreliable? Or, what of those who we really do want God to hold accountable? Like, I, there are some idolaters I really want you to eradicate from the face of the earth. There are people that I want your justice to rain down on for the evil that they've inflicted upon others. I want you, I need you to be faithful to who you say you are in this Deuteronomy passage. Now, not for me, but for them. Right, those that victimize children. Those that abuse the weak, the elderly. Those that take advantage of people that are helpless. To be fair, those that belittle or incite. Those that ridicule others and make them feel less than human. God, show up. Anyone who dehumanizes another person based on age, race, sexuality. Those who lie and lead nations into war. Those who get away with crimes and heinous acts of violence. Those who emotionally abuse and perpetuate cycles for generations of harm. Those that relegate others to the outside and never provide a seat at the table and say, no, you're not good enough. There's no way on earth, there's no way that God doesn't get angry over these things, over these situations, over these injustices that happen all the time and everywhere. They must anger him. They must. So why aren't these people removed from the face of the earth? You know, the video mentioned that we understand God using metaphors, using our experiences, using our language, language to describe a God that is mysterious, that isn't human, that isn't, as they said, doesn't get hot or red, doesn't have a nose even. But we use our language to describe this God, to, to understand this God. And as the video showed, as the scripture shows, like from beginning to end, the whole thing is consistent that God's anger is fueled by injustice. But his punishments, he seems to let people off the hook. Or as described in the video, he seems to let people, he gives people over to their choices. That rather than sending a lightning bolt to smite me as an idolater, he says, go ahead. Is that working for you? Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Or have you dug yourself your own grave? God continually seems to let people succumb to their own choices, their, their self-inflicted consequences. In the language of the scriptures, in the language of Romans chapter 2, he gives them over to themselves, or, or in the Old Testament, often into the hands of their enemies, which I would argue is often themselves their own betrayal. So I want to share a, a bad parenting story. You might be able to, to relate to this. When my kids were younger, especially uh, when Matthew and Sam were younger, we lived um, in different cities. We chased cheap rent and always lived really close to a park. And we'd go and we'd play at the park every day. It was just wonderful. Going down the slide and shoes full of sand. You know how it is. Um, and, you know, inevitably, we'd always stay just a bit too long, right? 
And they go, all right, kids, time to go. No, right? And they go hide and they go run somewhere. And it's like, all right, fine. One more minute, five more minutes, right? Okay, okay. And then we've really got to go now. No. You know, and then you get a little hot of nose. Hey, I said we got to go now. No. All right, I'm leaving. I'm getting in the car. If you don't come with me, I'm leaving you here. And you'll be kidnapped or you'll starve to death. And what do I do? I do this sort of fake walk away, right? Like, like I am going to abandon you. No, Dad, no, don't leave us, right? And they run. It's like, what a whole, by, by the way, this, this is about me, okay? I'm not talking about any of you. I'm sure none of you have done this. But it's not a great parenting strategy to shame your children into obedience. If you don't listen to me, I will abandon you, right? It doesn't, like, it's not exactly the most reassuring, loving, godly response. And even, like, even in the hot of nose moment, like, enjoying, I'm going to leave you. No, Dad, no. I'm like, yeah, that's right. You need me. <laughs> like, like, are you kidding? It's disgusting. It's like sadistic. Okay. Why do I share that story with you? I want to be really clear. I do not understand God's anger well. I'm not an authority on this topic. I'm ha- I've had a lot of difficulty this week trying to synthesize and, and make a cohesive statement about God's anger and how it works. But what I am saying is despite numerous clear warnings throughout scripture, like clear as day threats or consequences for what will happen to us if we disobey God, despite them, despite the clear articulation of those, God routinely ignores what he says he's gonna do when it comes to consequences. Like over and over and over again. God does not punish me in ways that he says he will. I hope you've experienced that same graciousness in your life. The number of times that God could have been like, man, David, enough. I, I, I quit you. You're done. Irredeemable. I'm waiting for that day and it hasn't happened. Can I get an amen to that? Like, is that how God has treated you? Has God been good to you despite, despite the ways that you neglect him, proclaim things inaccurately about him? I'm sure I do that all the time. People, it seems like people should be smited left and right, like all around us, based on idol worship, based on injustice, based on the evils that we are capable of. And so either, either the Bible isn't reliable, which I, I, don't, I don't agree with. I think it is reliable. Or it's not quite mathematics. Like these things aren't one plus one equals two. If you do this, God will do that. It, it may just be a little bit more complex than that. There may be more nuance than that. And I'm not sure why. I'm really not sure. But I think about this. Of all the descriptions of God's anger and the slowness with which God gets angry, God's loyal love seems to prevail. God's forgiveness seems to prevail. His love for us wins out. And I love that slow to anger is couched in between compassion and graciousness and loyal love and faithfulness. And notice this, it doesn't say God is slow to compassion or slow to graciousness, 
or slow to loyal love or slow to faithfulness. Those things are like immediate. It's the anger part that he is slow to. I want to read you one of them. Just again, to kind of add to this complexity, the nuance of this anger, out of the Ten Commandments, Exodus uh, chapter 20, I want to read uh, verse 5, which again is about the, the sin of idolatry. If you have your Bibles, Exodus 20, verse 5, it says this, you shall make for yourself, sorry, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. But, but, showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, when you read the first part of that, it's alarming. You mean if I, if I hate you, God, or if I curse you, multiple generations, three or four generations have to pay the price for that? And then in the very next breath, God goes, ah, but for those of you that love me, I'm going to bless thousands of generations. Just notice the contrast, the difference there. Again, our, our language is metaphorical. We're trying to understand God's character through our experiences, through our culture, through our context. And it just feels like to me, and I know feels, there's all sorts of traps, and I, maybe I'm feeling wrong, but it feels like to me that the Bible over and over and over again, despite these terrifying threats, God is simply trying to say to us, to communicate to a people that obedience to God is worth it. That God's goodness is so much more available to us than God's judgment. That life is just so much better when we're working with God than we're working against God, which ultimately means we're just trying to secure things for ourselves and we become God. And God is sort of saying, there's such an abundance, thousands of generations of abundance in following me, and life is way harder not following me, way less fulfilling way more dangerous to you, you will become, uh, God will allow, God will give you up to yourself if that's what you really, really want. So God's anger is referenced in the Old Testament 54 times, where God's sort of character is attributed, attributed to anger, 54 times. In the New Testament, three. Why? I believe it's because Jesus, the fullest and clearest revelation of who God is corrected our misunderstanding about God's character. That Jesus came and corrected our misconceptions of God. The ancient world attributed all things to God, all bad things, all good things, all menial things belong to God because God's in control, God is all-powerful. And Jesus comes on the scene, and I think he corrects that and says, you know, some of the things you think are, are God's punishments to you are not. In John 9, you know the story. The Pharisees trying to, to, to or the senior pastors and the lay leaders are trying to, to trap Jesus and say, hey, this guy who's born blind, whose fault? Is it him or his parents? Who sinned? Going back to the sort of, you're going to be cursed generationally for three or four generations. Who messed up? The blind guy or his parents? And what does Jesus say? 
Neither. He's, he's blind so that I might show the mighty works of God. You're going to see a show of power and grandeur and liberation. You're going to see somebody blind receive their sight simply because I am merciful and I am mighty. Who sinned? Jesus goes, neither, but nobody. That the works of God would be displayed in him. I, th I think... I think some of our biblical authors are kind of like me and my bad parenting story. Where they gave attributes to God that Jesus clarified. He said, now this is a God of robust love and mercy and forgiveness. And don't get me wrong, God is a God who cares immensely about justice. And we see Jesus get angry and overturn tables and call the senior pastors and lay leaders some pretty harsh words for their inability or, or maybe for their intentional barrier building from people to God. But we get to see Jesus correct our understanding of God over and over and over again. And he shows us just how loyal his love is to an unloyal people. And so I stand before you as somebody who's grateful that God's anger is slow and long of nose. And that that wick burns for a long, long time. And I would encourage us as we read passages like this Deuteronomy passage or the Exodus passage, that we would as people of Jesus always, always filter our ideology and our theology through our Christology. And our Christology is what we believe about Jesus. What Jesus has said to us in the red letters of the Bible and, and, and revealed to us about character, that the rest of our theology needs to go through our Christology. What we believe about Jesus informs the rest. Jesus is the baseline. And there's all sorts of other ologies that we should filter through our Christology. I have a seminary degree, so I have to use these words every once in a while. So our soteriology, which is what we believe about salvation, should be centered in our Christology and who Jesus is. Probably not from, and I'm not trying to say any of the passage I've used today are obscure, but our, our soteriology, what we believe about salvation, shouldn't come from obscure passages, but it should come from the mouth of Jesus. Our ecclesiology, what we believe about being a gathered people in a church, the root of that should be our Christology. What do we believe about Jesus? Even our theology proper, the things we believe about the character of God, you know, God's omniscience and God's um, uh, sovereignty and, and um, God's creative power, these things should be informed by our Christology, what we believe about the character and the person of Jesus. All of them, our anthropology, what we believe about a people and to be human should be informed by Jesus. And on and on and on. Did Jesus get mad? Yes. Is God capable of getting mad? Absolutely. Is his anger meant to punish us like I punish my children? No. It's meant to direct us to repentance and to mercy and his loyal love and his faithfulness and his graciousness and his compassion. we would be wise to do the same thing. To give up our anger, at least have long noses. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your, your righteous anger, because it is corrective. 
It calls us to a better way of living. Your righteous anger is, it is intended to get us away from the places and the decisions in our life that will lead us to harm and the harm of others. Remind us that obedience to you and selflessness and, and the kindness and living in likeness to you is the best possible way to live. And the beauty of it is sustaining it and, it and it does minister to generation after generation. And that when we sin, when we are, when we participate in evil, it absolutely affects multiple generations. Pain and abuse and systemic issues are, are learned. So help us be people that oh, when we get angry, it's angry at the injustices of the world, but it's not angry at people that you call beloved children. And might our anger lead us to compassion? Might it lead us to graciousness? Might it lead us to loyal love? And might it lead us to faithfulness in following you? It's in your name we pray. Amen. I just want to read uh, from Romans 8, which we just sang about. Um, yes, God is worthy of our awe and magnificent and so powerful. And for a lot of us, we grew up under the thumb of God's anger, just trying to please God and, and never quite measuring up. And I just want to remind you that that's not the God we worship. We don't worship a God that's looking for you to fail or looking for reasons to punish you, but is always looking for reasons to have you return back to love. Out of Romans 8, Paul in this incredible, he's so sure says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor heavenly beings or any rulers or monarchs, nor things present, nor literally anything that could ever come, no power, no height, no depth, not a single thing in God's entire created order, nothing, no one, will be or is ever able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As you leave this place, leave in the name of a loving Father and a loving Son and a loving Spirit. Amen and God bless you.